Well, welcome to Christian Life Academy. We are working our way through Chapter 2 of God and the Holy Trinity from the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, which is our doctrinal statement of faith. And um, uh, basically, we are covering what is essentially attributes of God that are covered in Paragraph 1 of Chapter 2. And these attributes, um, although the Confession is pretty um, all-encompassing in uh, the way that it describes God and who He is, uh, these are terms that we frequently uh, hear, we frequently um, uh, hear them preached, we hear them taught, we uh, see references to them, and uh, frankly, we just don't think beyond that. I mean, can we be honest about this? You don't. Most of us don't. Not very often that you think beyond it. Because the truth of the matter is, is that when we talk about things like this that are so big and so far beyond um, our comprehension to completely and fully understand them because they're so different from our own human experience and existence that um, it's one of those things that we kind of just pass on. We kind of just accept it. We kind of just hear it, let it go through, and out the other side. So let me just ask for you to think about for a second, what is the, what is the value of understanding these things? What, why is it important for you to understand how almighty God is or how unchanging he is or how holy he is or how incomprehensible he is? Now, can, you know, I thought about this a lot over the last couple of weeks and the truth of the matter is, is that most of us never think beyond what we hear and we don't really know why we need to know. This is, this is the truth. Now, here's where we can default, and we do default, pretty much all the time. Well, it's being taught, it's being preached, so I should listen. So I would ask you to think about the question that's probably tells you right where you're at. How many times did you think about the message last week, this week? How many times did you think about what you heard last week from the pulpit from the lectern, how many times did you think about it? At all? Just be honest with yourself. Did you think about it at all? It's really, really easy for us to check the box. You with me? You know what I mean when I say check the box? What I mean is, I went to church, check, did it, done. I gave an offering, check, done. Right? Now, we don't do this in much else of life. Not anything that's really important. Like, for instance, if you're married and you know that every day you should spend six to eight minutes talking to your spouse. Now, you say six to eight minutes. Okay, so let me back up and give you the statistic. Are you ready? People that are divorced spend less than three minutes per day with their spouses, conversing with their spouses on average, less than three minutes a day. Once you pass the three-minute threshold, the chances of divorce drop dramatically. Three minutes. You heard me right, right? Three minutes. So if you spend six minutes a day talking to your spouse, you have doubled your chances of not getting divorced. You understand what I'm saying? Now, that seems... Almost incomprehensible, doesn't it? 
But you have to keep in mind something, that we're not talking about, could you reach this for me out of the cabinet? What's for dinner? You understand what I'm saying? It's not, it's not that. It's, it's you're listening to your spouse and you're talking about, with them about things. It doesn't even seem to matter, according to the numbers, it doesn't even seem to matter what it is you talk about. But that conversation that you have with them, that's a form of intimacy and friendship. Can we say that? I'll be honest. I mean, that is friendship, right? How much of a friend is somebody if you never talk to them? Well, they're not your friend, right? It's only when you talk to them that they become friends, when you share things with each other, when you listen to them. So if you think about that number, (laughs) it's unbelievably small, isn't it? Isn't that unbelievably small? It's not an hour. It's three minutes. Six minutes is the, is the big jump. After six minutes, there's, there's a diminishing return. <laughs> now, don't go home and say, I spent my six minutes, we're done. <laughs> that could be really bad. No, don't do that. No. <laughs> if you say that, then the chances are going to go up. So, uh, no, it's not that. It's that the fact is, is that uh, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about things, Right? The most important person in a relationship with you in human existence is your spouse. Now, if you're not yet married, then that's probably your parents followed closely by your siblings. This is, this is the closest relationships you have. And if you actually don't make any effort to talk to those important people in your life, you're checking the box. And if you're checking the box, you're likely to end that relationship or to diminish it. So my point here isn't, you know, you need to be spending more time talking to your spouse. That's not my point at all. My point here is is that we should be spending more time on the things that are important to us, not just checking the box. You understand what I'm saying? We should be spending more time on what's important. If the scriptures and understanding God is important to us, we would dwell on it. We would think about it. We would spend more time with it. It is so easy to get in the habit of just checking the box. Right? It's easy to do with your spouse. If you're a busy person, this is really easy to do. You know what I'm talking about. It's really easy. When we talk about the attributes of God, they are so far beyond our everyday lives that it's very difficult to understand and and really grasp in our own minds why we should spend more time on this. Yeah, I'm going to be honest, just tell you that that's the case. I mean, you know, I've got the next month or so ready to go, and the whole thing, everything we're going to talk about is about concepts that you will not necessarily see any effect of every day. Now, you could. You could. And this is what it comes down to. I'm going to give you a reason. Okay, It's not the only reason. It may not be the best reason. But I'm going to give you a reason why this should matter to you. And the reason is, is that when you need to know that these things are true of God, is when you're in a crisis. So, when you're trying to answer the question, Why did God allow my sibling, my spouse, my child to be killed? 
That's a crisis. Would you agree with me on that? That's a crisis. That is not the time that you want to figure out if God is truly in control, if he is truly holy, why bad things happen. Is God wise or not? Is he making the right decisions about what's going to happen? That's not the time. That's the time when you want to feel assurance that all those things about God are true and that you can know for certain and you can have comfort in that time of crisis that he is in control. He does have a plan. It's for his glory. He's almighty. He can stop it if he wants to stop it. He can allow it if he wants to allow it. He's not going to give you anything that you can't bear. That's why it's important. Is it important that you understand every nuance? It is not important. It's not now we're going to go through this, this next big section like we have been doing. And we're going to have a lot of verses. So the reason that we have a lot of verses, it's not just to prove it, right? We could only do, we could do two or three verses on any of these subjects, and that should be enough, right? The scripture says it, says it a couple times, clear, not obscure, it's clear, done. The reason that we cover multiple verses is because sometimes there's nuances, a verse may say it a little different way, so it helps us get it. But it's also because these characteristics of God are throughout the Scripture. They're all over the place. So these are, you know, the writers of the Bible recognized God's attributes in different circumstances. Right? You can think of they thought about it when there was tragedy, when there was victory, when they didn't know if God was out there. They don't hear an answer from him. When he's very real and very present and they see his wrath pouring out. These verses cover all those things. And the reason that we're looking at them is because we have to remember that those should be true for us too. When we get into those bad situations, when we get into those uh, unusual situations of life, not the -the run-of-the-mill everyday thing, but we get to those situations in life where we have struggles and we have challenges and we see things are going askew, that's when we should know who God is. We should know. Because, I mean, look, everybody's been through some troubles. Nobody's been through the same troubles. Right? We, none of us have been through the same troubles. We've been through similar troubles. But what your relationships are, what your job situations have been, what your money situations have been, what your family situations have been, what your church situations have been, all those things are different for all of us. Right? They are. They're different. So you can't turn to the person next to you when those things happen and say, Well, this exact same thing happened to you. How did you deal with it? Why? No one has had the exact same thing happen to them. You say, well, what about having, uh, you know, a child die? Okay. There have been people that have children die, right? Was it the same situation as yours? Probably not. More than likely not. Did you have the same relationship with that child that they had? Probably not. Are you with me on this? In other words, all of these trying times are different for everybody. 
You need to know who God is so that you can relate that to what's going on in your situation. It is incredibly hard to not have doubts in those times. Right? And we see that throughout the Scripture. The doubt, the fear. Is God in control? Why is he allowing this? When will this end? What did I do wrong? What did they do wrong? Have you heard all these things before? And yet, we know from the examples in the Scripture that sometimes God is in control. He's not going to let you know why. He's going to hold it in a long time period where you're not going to know what's going on. You're not going to know when he's going to intervene. You're not going to know, you're not going to know when the trouble's going to end. And you're going to be in the middle of it and you're going to be hurting. Do we have any examples of that in Scripture? Yeah, you can't even help but go to Job. Right? Now you could think of David. He's going through a lot of troubles, didn't he? But Job, did he do anything wrong? Did God allow that to happen to him because he did something wrong? No. In fact, I mean, if you're paying attention, he allowed those things to happen to him because he was doing everything right. Have you considered my servant Job? Upright in all his ways. So why do you think Job was able for most of his difficulties to not question God. You, you remember that uh, Job stayed faithful to God and didn't question him and didn't sin. He didn't even question him until the end, until near the end, right? And then he had a conversation with God. And God reminded him, who were you to question me? Were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? Were you there, right? So even Job had questions. But the reason Job didn't succumb to difficulties and to the struggles right away, and by the way, dishonor God through it. Because remember, this was God saying, have you considered, he's telling Satan, look at this guy. Right? And Satan says, oh yeah, well you put a hedge around him. I'm paraphrasing here. It's the modern English version. <laughs> no. Right? Do you remember this? Job took what happened, he mourned, but he didn't question God. There, there was some level of contentment in Job because he didn't have to figure out if God was in control. He knew he was. He didn't have to question whether or not God was right in what he was doing. He knew he was. And by the way, you know that that differs for us. From, for us from most other religions. They don't claim to have God, a God or gods that are completely righteous and holy. They have gods who get angry, who lose their temper, who cause evil, do evil things. Then they change their mind later. In fact, they're always changing their minds. Wow. Can you imagine that? That's hard to have faith in that. Because what's your faith in? That you can't count on God? That's what their faith would be in those false gods. So we talk about the characteristics of God. 
let's keep this in mind. This does matter. Is it important that you understand every nuance of every characteristic? No. It's, un it's important that you understand the basic principle and that you believe it. Now, if you say, well, I don't know if I, I heard what he said, but I don't necessarily see that. Well, then you should investigate that further so that you do have some confidence in that. The bottom line about our experience, our human experience, our lives, our environment, all the things that we, is our reality, so to speak, is that we're not in control. Not in control. Now, here's a remote. Could I drop this on the floor right now? Could I let go and drop it on the floor? Now you think, well, of course you can. Yeah, sure. Can I take my glasses off? Yeah, sure you could. Unless God doesn't want that to fall and hit the ground. Then I cannot let it go. In fact, I'll never even have the desire to let it go. Guess what? I don't. Say, <laughs> so, well, that is that is that God in control? A little. Part of it. It's easy for us to think about God being in control when we think about the weather, right? Or things that are way outside of our control. Our control, quote unquote. It's easy to think about God being in charge then. Geopolitical things, right? But we don't actually normally put that into our understanding and practice. Because what that amounts to is everything that's happening is part of God's plan. I mean, believe me, it may be hard to swallow, but God wanted Joe Biden to be president. <laughs> Some of you are feeling a little uncomfortable now. God didn't want all the potholes fixed at this point. How do you know that? If God wanted them fixed, would they be fixed? If God wanted somebody else to be president, would they be? I mean, what's out of his control? So does that mean that we should be fatalists and that everything we should just leave to whatever and not even worry about what God says or what he does because we can just live how we want to because we're not in charge. Well, we're not in charge. But we are commanded to behave in a certain way. We're commanded to do certain things. And those are the things we must do. Now, you are not commanded to have a car. You're not. It's not. There was no command to have a horse. There was no command to have a, a cow. There was, it wasn't in there. But you may choose to do that, but I can guarantee you that you're not going to have a car that God doesn't want you to have. How do we know? He's almighty. He's decreed it. It starts to get a little difficult to deal with, doesn't it? I hope you think so, because I do. 
I do. When we look at these scriptures for who God is, that should help us deal with those issues a little bit. When you think of the issues in life that are a great difficulty for you now or in the past, they should comfort you. They should assure you. But don't forget, no matter what happens, you know your destination. And in the end, truly, that is the only thing that matters. That's it. Now, as a believer, should you still be compelled to obey God, to worship Him, to share the gospel? Yes, you should. These are the signs of a believer. But the reality is, is that's all that matters. What about pain? What about suffering? What about a not the life that Joel Osteen describes? Don't matter. Cancer? Doesn't matter. Heart disease? Doesn't matter. No money? Homeless? Well, we don't like to think about that one, do we? Doesn't matter. Do you know that most of the apostles were homeless? Many of them left and continued on journeys until they died. Only a few came back to where they were from. He said, yeah, they were apostles. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> Why? They're the examples for us. Were they perfect? Nope. No. And you know, I can guarantee you this. I can guarantee you this 100%. I'm not adding to the scriptures by saying this. I can guarantee you that they had more doubt, more fear, more struggles, more problems, more difficulties in their interactions with the other apostles even than we see in the scripture. These were real people going through something that was extraordinary. They did not have some kind of a miraculous calmness or indwelling of the Holy Spirit that they, that they were able to handle all these situations. They had doubts. They had confusion. They had lives. Imagine any of them, which I think is almost all of them, that had a basic understanding of the scriptures, the Torah, as they'd been taught, and the prophets, they had a basic understanding of this. What were they expecting? What had been taught to them for 700 years in the synagogues? That the Messiah was going to free them from the bondage of the Roman Empire. He was going to be a military leader. Remember this? So the apostles... We're raised with that. You think it wasn't something to them that was a little bit disconcerting, like they didn't understand? Why is this not what we thought it was? Sure, of course. Right? Like, do you read what Jesus, what Jesus spoke when we read the Gospels, and do you get it all 100%? And if you say, no, I don't necessarily get it all 100%, good, neither did they. Neither did they. How do we know? They're people. See, if they were extraordinary, if they were people who had this special dispensation of the Holy Ghost, they would mean nothing to you. 
because they couldn't be an example. All Paul's writing about dealing with difficulties, about doing what he doesn't want to do and not doing what he should do, what he wants to do, that wouldn't matter to you at all because he's special, right? But no, he wasn't. He was one of us. He had the same fears. He had the same doubt. He had the same uncertainty. What they did have that was different than us is more intense teaching in the synagogue. They had a better understanding of who God was. So let's make sure that we gain a better understanding of who God is as we work through this chapter. Let's not play around with it. Think about it after the class, not during the message. Today, tomorrow, you're driving in the car, whatever. Think about it. Okay. So the next section that we're, next attribute that we're covering is that God is almighty. Now, this is actually underneath a general or a broad category of God is sovereign. That's why you see point F up there, and if you have an outline, that's in there. He is sovereign, and to what extent is he sovereign? We've been working through like God is eternal, uh, God's incomprehensible, and part of that also is that God is almighty. So, Almighty literally means possessing all power or omnipotent. So when you hear someone say, well, God is omnipotent, they're saying God is all-powerful. Omni means all. Potent means power. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is almighty. If God is not possessing all power, is limited in some way, then obviously he would not be God. He would be less than God. Right? So... Uh, if there's some part of our existence that God cannot control, he wouldn't be God. So when you hear people say things like, you know, well, you know, God's just figuring out how to deal with this. Okay. Well, I mean, maybe that's well-intentioned, trying to calm somebody, get somebody to get through a difficult time or something like that. Why is, why was this not, why is this not resolving? Why is my loved one in the hospital still in a coma? Why is this still happening? Well, God's trying to figure this out. No, he's not trying to figure it out. Is there any chance that God could bring somebody out of a coma? Yes. How about cure cancer? Yes. How about raise somebody from the deathbed and give them health again? Yes. Right? I mean, is there any of that you'd question? Shouldn't. Shouldn't. God's omnipotence is necessary for him to carry out his will and to carry his will and purposes into being whatever God pleases to do, he has the power to do. So if he wasn't almighty, then he couldn't ensure that his will would be done. Does that make sense? So if we believe that God has a will and he has a plan, which is taught throughout Scripture, we talked about that already, we have to believe that he has the power to then fulfill that plan, to actually make that plan come about in the way that he wants it to come about, which, by the way, is incomprehensibly complex. Okay? Incomprehensibly complex. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, what we mean by that is, is that if you think about almost anything that happens, 
that's significant for God's kingdom. There are so many moving pieces to get that to come about, it's almost beyond our comprehension. Like, somebody is uh, in, in bad health, and somebody goes and prays with them and, and encourages them, and that person is miraculously healed. Let's say. Okay, has that happened before? Yes, that's happened. So, then the question is, well, doesn't that just mean that God had to send that person over to pray with them and then he performed a miracle? Well, that person had to become a believer. They actually had to pray so God could hear them. So, how did they become a believer? Where did they learn about God? Where did they learn the gospel? Where did they hear the gospel? When were they converted? What caused them to be in the state, city, town to be in that position to do that? How many things had to happen in their lives to put them in the place to do that? How many things had to happen in your life to put you in the chair right in the seat you're in right now in these pews? Did you expect to be here 10 years ago? Nobody can say yes. You did not. You didn't expect this. How many things had to happen in your life to get you to this point? For you to be here this morning. For me to be teaching you this morning. How many things? It's mind-blowing how many things had to happen. Because it's not just you, it's not just me, it's all the other things that affected us. Like, any of you could have gotten a job out of state. Right? You didn't. In fact, some of you, you, you had periods where you had no work. You could have got a job out of state. True? Yeah. Or what about a catastrophic failure of the retirement system? So you got no more money coming. Could that happen? <laughs> yes. But it hasn't. And so for some of you that are getting retirement, you're here. That's the idea that God has the power to cause all these things to work together. It's like an infinite number of gears to line up, to mesh for his will to be done. There is no way possible that anything other than God could cause that to happen. Right? So, no matter how much we are convinced that there is a conspiracy theory, there's a conspiracy, not a theory, there's a conspiracy for something to happen, that these people are all causing this to happen, right? Whether it's a New World Order, or whether it is uh, the Bilderbergers, or whether it is uh, Bill Gates Foundation, or whatever it is that you believe is, is, could happen. Nothing about them and their existence could happen without God allowing that to happen. And, and you think, well, you know, the government has become so big, you know, they can do anything they want to. Okay. No, they can't. They are inept. I mean, the reason that the government has to spend so much money in its own operations is because it's so bad at what it does. You understand, the IRS got that huge, you know, controversial, nonetheless, huge uh, increase that was going to allow them to hire 87,000 more agents and all these things, right? Well, just to make sure that you're un you understand what's going on, the computers they use in the IRS offices are from the 90s. Did you hear what I said? 
What version of Windows were we on? Some of those PCs, some of those PCs are running Windows 5.1. And if you don't remember a 5.1 ever being in existence, that's because you probably didn't have a PC when those PCs were started to go into service for the IRS. They are not capable. Let me ask you a question. If the government wants to get a hold of you, let's say the FBI wanted to get a hold of you, you think they could just find you without any problems? No, they cannot. No, they cannot. How about the IRS? A lot better chance. They can find you. Why? Because you send them your address every year. That's why. So, I left the Army in 1988. Are you with me so far? 1988. When we left the Army, we moved to back to Ohio. We moved in with my in-laws. Okay? We lived there for about six months. Then we moved into an apartment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We have moved is it 16 times, 17, something like that. 16 or 17 times since we've been married. Four times in the Army. So we have moved a lot of times. My father-in-law talked to Barbara this week. There's a packet that came to the house with my name on it from the Department of Veterans Affairs. 1988. You're with me. 30, how many? 35 years ago, I left the Army, and they have not updated my address since then. Now, obviously, if they could get my address from the IRS, they would have my current address, right? They can't. They're not that organized. They're not that organized. I mean, how about the Social Security Administration? You know, I, I don't know about you guys, but I, for the last three or four years, I haven't got one. You used to get the annual statement every year. That would be like a statement that tells you how much you've earned for the last 10 years or whatever. And so how much your earnings level is at. You know, I haven't got one for a couple years now. I don't know about you guys, but I haven't got one. But they had my address. You know, I was getting things from them. Well, the Department of Veteran Affairs, they, they don't have my address. And this is a government that we have had unbelievable amounts of money, billions and billions of dollars in their budget that they have. And they can't make all the gears mesh together for mailing a packet. If God was in charge of the government and he controlled what actually happened there, specifically and directly, do you think they would know my current address? Do you think if there was this huge conspiracy in the government that they knew everything, they controlled everything, that they would actually know my address? Yes, they do. You know, what we tend to think is that whatever they show in the movies or books, that's what the reality is. So the government can just instantly call up all your records and see everything they want. They don't even have access to some of those. They don't have access. They want access. But they don't have access to some of that. Almighty God has access to everything all the time. He is able to thwart a conspiracy. Or he's able to sow the seeds and grow a conspiracy. Both ways. Both ways. And if you look through the scripture from a conspiracy point of view, there's a whole lot. 
There's a whole lot. Because everybody considers it a conspiracy if some group or individuals are trying to upset the apple cart of whatever they think should happen. Then, of course, that's a conspiracy. You think Pharaoh didn't think that Moses was leading a conspiracy? Yeah, he did. How about the Romans? Were they concerned about Christians? They were. How about the Jews? Were they concerned about Christians? Yeah. And they had seen many of them. False Christ. Right? God is almighty. He is in control. We should not be focused on the conspiracy. Why? Because he's in control. If bad things are going to happen, it's only with God's allowing them to happen. It is not because he missed it. He couldn't stop it. Satan beat him on that one. Those seem obvious. But we don't often think about it that way, do we? Nothing in heaven or earth can stay God's hand from doing whatsoever he wills. There is no thwarting God's will. God's power is subordinate to his will and his wisdom and is governed by his holy character. So, is there a limit on God's power? Ah, yes. So Paul's saying no. Yes, there is. Notice what this line is saying. It's subordinate to his will and his wisdom, and it's governed by his holy character. So, can God make a rock so big that he can't move it? And if you say, well, no. Well, wait a minute. Is he almighty or he's not almighty? That's a trick question. Could he make a rock that he can't move? No. Why? It's contrary to his will and to his character. It's impossible. Of course he can't make a rock that he can't move because he can move any rocks. Well, then he can't make it. No. There is a, there's no possibility of that being a possible existence. It can't happen. Are you with me? But you see the point. His power is subordinate to his will and to his holy character. Can God change his promises? Can God change his will? Can he change his word? No, he can't. Why? Well, if he's God, can he change it? Can he decide to change the rules if he's God? There's a lots of places in Scripture that say God changes rules. No, no, there isn't. But here's what we know. God's will is subordinate. His power is subordinate to his will and his holy character. Does that make sense? He's not going to change his will. He's not going to change his word. Because he's subordinate to that. Does that make sense? So there is a limitation in that. Just like there's a limitation, when you talk about being almighty, about if God can sin. Can God sin? No, he can't sin. Why? He's perfectly holy. He's perfectly holy. But if he's almighty, can't he sin? No. His power is subordinate to his character, his holiness. Does that make sense? And by the way, just to further give you a complete noodle cooker, no matter what God does, it's holy. So, if we say, can God sin, by its definition... He cannot sin. Because anything he does is holy. Wait a minute. That's almost like he's automatically justified in whatever he does. Yes, he is. 
But then is that actually sin? No, it's not. <laughs> Let's not keep going down that path because we're going to cover it later. All right. There are several things God cannot do. Here we go. Here's what he cannot do. God cannot act out of character. Right? He can't act out of character. What we were just talking about. He cannot die, lie, or deny himself. If he could, he would not be omnipotent. He would not be almighty God. Right? If he could die, he would not be almighty God. If he could lie, he would not be almighty God. If he could deny himself, he wouldn't be almighty God. 2 Timothy 2.13 If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. God cannot lie or go against his word, Hebrews 6, 17 and 18, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, that's the unchanging of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that two by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. See, the point is, is that when God says he's going to do something, He's going to do it because he cannot lie. It's contrary to his character. He is immutable, unchanging. He cannot change his mind and change his word or change how he says things are going to happen. has to be consistent. Does that make sense? God cannot be tempted with evil. God does send trials to Christians to strengthen our faith. But he is not responsible for the evil we do. He is the source of all, for all that is good. He does not tempt us, tempt to draw us into sin. He tempts to grow our resistance and help build our Christian character. Now, where do we see that? James 1, 13 through 17. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away from his own, of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom no is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Genesis 22.1 And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham, and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here am I. So this is a reference to the fact that the scriptures call that being tempted, but it was to, tr- to test him, to test Abraham. This is the beginning, of, by the way, of what happens when he's going to have to sacrifice. God calls him to sacrifice his son. Second Chronicles 32-31. Howbeit in the business of the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, who sent unto him to inquire of the wonder that was done in the land, God left him to try him, that he might know all that was in his heart. We see this throughout the scripture. God causing people to go through difficulties to test them, to try them, to grow them. James 1, 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith work is patience, but let patience have a perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And of course, Branch just covered that on Wednesday night. God cannot change. He cannot change. This violates his immutability. We actually already talked about his immutability. He cannot change. God cannot condemn someone for whom Christ dies to save. This would violate his word. So you say, well, if Christ died to save this person, can God then take him out of the people that he had promised to him 
in the covenant of redemption. When did the covenant of redemption, as a quiz, when did the covenant of redemption happen? If you were to look on that timeline back there on the wall, it's got the creation timeline and all the way to the end. If you were to look at that, which there's no date on the end. Anyway, if you were to look at that timeline on the back wall, when was the covenant of redemption? Before. It's before that. Covenant of redemption was before the, before the foundations of the earth was laid. So at that point, God and God the Father and God the Son made a covenant of redemption. The Son would be sacrificed and God would give him a people. So could God change who Christ died for? No, he can't do that because that would violate his own word. So Romans 8, 33 and 34, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. He cannot change it. These people have been selected. God is the one who justified it. It's done. God cannot do meaningless, absurd, self-contradictory things like a physical spirit, a square triangle, a rock he can't lift, etc., he has a perfect mind and does not do irrational things. So that's that whole idea, right, the rock thing there. But it's also, can God make a square triangle? I'm pretty sure that's a square. <laughs> any rate, can God make a square? Oh, of course he can't. That doesn't make any sense. It's irrational. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. God's power is not exhibited in its fullness, fullest extent in the universe. Oh, keep that in mind. God's power is not exhibited in its fullest extent in the universe. This is his creation, and his power extends farther than what we can realize or comprehend. He could create more and do more than he has if it were his will. Now, this is, again, a noodle cooker, but is this the only existence that there is? We don't know. We don't know. Now, we've talked about the physical, the temporal, or the metaphysical, right? Remember this? And the physical. We've talked about this. Is, this. is it possible that God has another, a different creation? That there is a different creation in existence? Someplace else? Yes, it's possible. How do we know? We don't. Nor do we need to. There's no reason for us to. Is there something in Scripture that says that as far as God's concerned, he has multiple human existences in other places? Nope. There's nothing that says he doesn't either. There's nothing that says either way. In the end, it doesn't matter to us, does it? If there's some other existence beyond our own universe, another existence that God has created, what does that matter to you? It doesn't. It doesn't matter at all. So his power... This is what this is kind of, that was a little bit of a science fiction rabbit hole there. But his power extends beyond our universe. That's the point. His power is beyond our universe. It exists outside of more than our universe. He created our universe. Obviously, that means that his power is greater than we see in our universe. Does that make sense? It's greater than what we see in our universe. God's omnipotence is necessary for his other characteristics to be true. Without unlimited power, his mercy, wisdom, Justice and promises would be feeble and weak. In other words, if he does not have all power to actually make these other things true, 
uh, he wouldn't be able to. In other words, he would ha- he has to have unlimited power to ha- be able to en- enact complete justice, right? To have complete wisdom, for his will to be carried out completely, he has to have power to make that happen. Just another indicator that he does. We ignore God's omnipotence when we sin, fear man instead of God, trust in ourselves, and reject the gospel. In all those cases, we are literally ignoring God's omnipotence. Is God all-powerful or not? He is. So if he is, shouldn't we fear him more than men? Shouldn't we fear him when we're tempted to sin, but we think it's going to make somebody else happy? Yeah. Or more importantly, that we think it's going to make us happy? Shouldn't we fear God and his power? We should. As believers, God's omnipotence is a source of hope. If God is for us, who can be against us? So the footnotes in the, in the confession is Genesis 17.1. And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. A few other verses, Jeremiah 32.17. Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is none too hard for thee. First Chronicles 29.10-13. Wherefore David blessed the Lord, before all the congregation. And David said, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all. And in thine hand is power and might. And in thine hand is it to make great and to give strength unto all. Now therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. Psalm 115, verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Daniel 4.35. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? God is almighty. That's all we have time for. Let's close in a word of prayer.